0: Hey everybody, welcome to Props and Hops, powered by Dimers.com. I'm Matt Landis, and with the first two rounds of March Madness in the rearview mirror, and Major League Baseball's opening day just nine days away, our guest in this episode is Eno Saris. Odds are, a lot of you know Eno from his work with The Athletic, where he's a baseball analytics writer, as well as the co-host of the Rates and Barrels podcast, which looks at the game from a fantasy angle. And that makes this interview timely, with fantasy baseball draft season reaching its fever pitch. You might also know Eno from his previous work, where he's written for Fangraphs, ESPN, Fox, MLB.com, and SB Nation, among others. Or, if you're like me, you discovered Eno is the co-host of the Sleeper and the Bus podcast a few years back. Either way, we know Eno's got an encyclopedic knowledge when it comes to baseball, but what makes him an ideal fit for props and hops is that he's also a craft beer fanatic. In fact, he literally wrote the book on baseball and beer. It's called A Baseball Lover's Guide to Craft Beer, and you can check it out on Amazon if you're looking for your go-to guide when it comes to beer, baseball, and culture in any Major League Baseball city. During our conversation, Eno also broke the news that he has his first beer collaboration with a brewery in the works. So if you're in the Chicago area and you like to drink hoppy, hazy crushers, you're especially going to want to stay tuned for that. So as you might imagine, Eno and I dive into beer as well as baseball from a fantasy and betting perspective. Specifically, Eno peeled back the curtain on what it's like to be an MVP voter, leading to some fascinating insights you're going to be hard-pressed to find anywhere else when it comes to the AL and NL MVP betting markets. And we also touch on some macro-level storylines for the 2021 season as we approach opening day. If that sounds good, I'd appreciate it if you could take a quick moment to follow or subscribe to Props and Hops wherever you get your podcasts, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, a quick rating and review would also be incredibly helpful. And if you're looking to get your sports betting fixed beyond the diamond, check out dimers.com where you can get daily picks covering the NBA and NHL. Alright, so without further ado, let's get to this week's conversation with Eno Saris. Eno Saris, welcome to Props and Hops. I've been a listener and reader of your work for years. It's an honor to be having this conversation. So thanks for joining.
1: Thanks for having me, Matt. It's been, yeah, we've, we're have we at October together and, uh, you know, it's been a little bit a while since then, but uh, it's great to, to to see you again. Yeah. And first things first, we're recording pretty close to happy hour window
0: on the West Coast. Full disclosure, it's Thursday, March 18th, right before the madness really picks up in the college basketball ranks, but to get things going, what are you drinking today?
1: Oh, I've got a Bissell brothers, uh, outgrowth, uh, Pilsner. There it is. Yeah, there we go. Nice. Outgrowth Pilsner with New Zealand hops. And we get a nice little sound bite. There we go. Ooh, that was sharp.
0: Cheers. All right. I'll, uh, Oh cheers you. I'm working with the uh, Creature Comforts Tritonia Goza. Uh, Mm -hmm. I actually had this shipped to me from the brewery because they'll be opening up a spot in L.A. this summer. So they just added this as well as a double IPA called Cosmic Debris to the year-round lineup and to try to build some buzz in California. I guess I qualify as beer media by doing this. So Creature Comforts on
1: Tropicalia is a, a, a top IPA.
0: Yeah. So look forward to having that in L.A. when they're open. But for now... All right. Cheers. And uh, yeah, while we get working on these, what was the beer that you would say won you over on the craft? I know a lot of people know your baseball work, but you're also very well known for your beer fandom.
1: Yeah, um, I think it was probably there's two beers that come to mind because um, I just come back from, I mean, back in the day in college, there was Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, right? So uh, <laughs> but, um, I had gone away from that and been more into sort of mixology and, and, um, you know, mixed drinks at bars. And then I was in England and England's all about, uh, Pilsners, you know, it's all about like, uh, Cronenberg. And I, 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 didn't really get into, like, I was with the young people. So we weren't drinking the, uh, the milds and the, and the Cascales, you know, we were drinking, uh, the, the, uh, uh the lagers and, so when I came back, I was like, uh, ah, you know, beer, it's kind of lagerish. It's okay. And I had Pincus organic Ur pills. Um, and I had Saison DuPont and between Ooh, those two beers, awesome. I was like, I was like, Whoa, like they were given to me because they were lighter. And, you know, I asked for something that was like, you know, lighter, but had more oomph to it. And, uh, I was like, okay, I'm all in all of a sudden. Like, I want to have try all these different saisons all the way down to the tart stuff. Uh big fan of like tart sour Saisons now. And I think Pincus with that sort of unfiltered uh Pilsner got me ready for hazy IPAs. But you know, through there I went through IPAs in the in the meantime and stuff. So that was that was kind of my beer journey right there. Yeah,
0: I you you touched on a lot of good ones. And I would also say, I mean. Maybe it's being from the West Coast, but Sierra Nevada Pale Ale definitely was the one to set the tone. I remember being in line to check into a hotel room in Vegas years ago, and it was a Friday afternoon. I was, I was one of many people waiting to get the weekend started. And my brother had just ran to the hotel bar and, and brought me back a bottle of Sierra Nevada Pale. And he's a few years older than me. I've always looked up to him. He's got some brewing experience and when he handed me that and I took a sip, I'm like, okay, this is different. This is not the Bud Light, <laughs> totally you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, Bud Light, Natty. This, this has a lot of flavor. The bitterness was definitely an adjustment, but I just, part of it is the beer drinking. Part of it is the experience and who you're with. And from that moment, I, I think there was a whole new level of respect for everything that went into it. And and yeah, touching on a classic like Cezanne DuPont. I think I've heard Tommy Arthur, who oversees the Lost Abbey, saying... Um, Cezanne Dupont is a big inspiration to him because when you basically Google search the style, that is the image, like on Wikipedia, I believe that is the first image of what a saison should be. But to your point, especially you're fairly close, I believe, to a spot like Sante Adarius where the mixed fermentation, tart saisons have really gotten Mm. in vogue. So it's been fun to see. I think still an underappreciated style has been making a bit of a comeback because now people can't get enough of their sours from time to time.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of funny because the trend right now in sours, I think, is more along the lines of like fruited sours, kettle sours, uh, lactose and fruited sours. And I've got a drawer full of those, honestly. <laughs> like yep. I, I'm always like, oh, yeah, I'll get one of those. And then later I'm like, ah, but Sante sours, man, I can crush those. Um, and, uh, and so like, yeah, the, any place that can come out with a tart Saison, I'm, I'm all over that.
0: Yeah. I've seen a couple of spots, I guess, one of the silver linings of the pandemic, the just beer shipping and distribution laws have been pretty greatly relaxed and fingers crossed that outlasts things here, but there's a really good beer bar in Ventura that actually does really good pizza called fluid state. And they've just had bottles of Saison Bernice kind of sitting there oh, and man, on the bottle. It says like, if we could pick a bottle to serve you ourselves, this is the one. So it nice. doesn't get much better than that. But yeah. yeah, I know we're kind of swimming in riches out here in California when it comes to the beer scene across a ton of different styles.
1: It's true. It's
0: true. So, yeah, well, uh, we can uh, definitely weave in some beer talk throughout the conversation. But I do know <laughs> well, a lot of people are... about
1: California beer, and I'm drinking a Maine beer, and you're drinking a Georgia we beer. Go.
0: Yeah, oh, well, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess it's not just California. <laughs> So uh, yeah, we'll we'll continue with uh, definitely some of the beer talk, but a lot of people I know are eager for any of your baseball insight. And to get that part of the conversation started, I'll steal a question from a recent guest I had on the show, Adam Stanko, who's a basketball expert, but repurpose it for a different sport and just ask you, "What's your earliest baseball memory?"
1: Yeah, I remember the park, um, Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. Uh, before I remember like an actual baseball play. I remember going to the park. I remember buying cheap tickets and being waved down in the fourth inning. I remember uh, going with a friend that had good tickets and seeing the players' wives. Um, I remember just loving the pace of it and the and the, the warm weather and just sort of sitting there knowing we'd be there for a while and we'd hang out and we'd talk. Uh, that's sort of how I fell in love with baseball first. But the, the first play I remember I'd already been in America. I, I came to this country in sort of 86 or so from Germany and Jamaica. And the the first play I remember, I'd been watching baseball for five or six years. But Sid Bream, um, what, what's going on is I think Francisco Cabrera, the backup catcher for the Braves, is pinch hitting. And uh, I believe it's the bottom of the ninth. And it's the NLCS. And it's against the Pirates. And Barry Bonds is in left. And Francisco Cabrera hits uh, uh, like basically a double out to Barry Bonds, and Sid Bream has two bad knees, and he's turning around the corner at third base, and it just looks like he's never going to make it. I mean, it just I remember <laughs> being a kid, be like, "Oh no, stop!" <laughs> and, like, no. and he just had these terrible knees, and he's just hobbling, and he slides in, and there's a tag play. And he he slid in to to win. I think he I think that finished the NLCS. I think that put him mm-hmm. through. And uh, they got mobbed at the plate, and uh, that was a real cathartic moment for Braves fans too, because they'd been bad for so long. Like when i before that, I'd been watching, and I'd just been waiting for them to be good. I I thought John Smalls was good. I thought these players were good, but uh, that moment changed everything. Geez, yeah, what
0: a way to get immersed in the sport, and then fast forwarding. Throughout your career, how would you say you've been able to parlay that kind of passion for baseball with your passion for beer and make your career path what it's been to this point?
1: You know, uh, the 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 thing that comes to mind is I, I used to edit children's books, and um when I had some free time, whenever I had free time, I would uh, I would read about baseball. I'd print out. FanGraphs chats and baseball for sexist chats. I'd print out Rob Nyer articles and all the things he linked to. I would just print it, everything out and, and take these massive two hour dumps at work <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where, uh, I was not, I was, I was reading the whole time. Um, and, uh, whenever I had a, a secondary passion, I just, I kind of dove all in and, um, so once I became a baseball writer, I, the secondary passion was beer. And I dove all in, I, I gave it the same passion that I'd given be, baseball once and I created beer graphs, which was a, a spin-off of fan graphs where you could sort beers by style and we had different statistics and you could you could filter things and and play around with it and my idea was that if you were, you know, in phoenix for work and you could you could tell them what you liked or what beers you liked at some point you could just sort for all the beers in phoenix that are like the beer you liked and click the link and find out where they are and go get them because one of the things i love about beer is how local it is you know um and that's how i've actually been about baseball too is i moved a lot in my life and i haven't been a braves fan my whole life i've I went to prep school in Boston, and they never won a World Series. So I was like, "Yeah, let's go Red Sox." Um, and then they won, and uh, the fandom got a little obnoxious—just <laughs> a little bit. And uh, and then I was out in school in California, and my dad um, had after after their divorce had moved out to California, and so I was like Giants. And then while I was at school, they got to the World Series. I was like, "Sweet." Uh, and then I moved to New York, and I was like, "Oh, well, I'm not going to be a Yankees fan." Uh and uh I chose the Mets and they got to the World Series I was in New York. So um uh, it's been I've been blessed uh that way. But also I I my philosophy is like, why not just steep yourself in the local fandom? Why hold on to this old idea of like, oh, I was once as you know, I was once a 12-year-old in Atlanta and it was all about the Braves. Why not like join up with the people around you and and see the the, the sport that's being played live and root for the local team? So uh, that's how I treat beer, too, is like whenever I land somewhere, whenever I travel, I'm like, yo, you know, Twitter, whoever, taxi driver, where's the best beer? <laughs> like, where's your where's your local beer? And that's one of my favorite things to do is to to just come into a brewery in some town that I've never been in before and, and, and taste something and be like, Whoa, you guys have a different take on this. This is amazing. Yeah. Well, and that's something I wanted
0: to touch on um, a baseball lover's guide to craft beer, uh, but you literally wrote the book when it comes to, you know, local baseball and beer pairings. And what do you put that together? Were you, I mean, referencing your previous work, like what you've done with beer graphs, your own firsthand experience. I know untapped at that time wasn't what it is today. Beer advocate had been growing for a few years, but how did you go about putting something like that together to marry those two passion points?
1: I think word of mouth is really the way to go. I mean, I did use some beer graphs. I did do use some data. I did look around, um, but at that point, Twitter became a flashpoint where I could say, hey, you know who's hanging out in Kansas City? Who's who knows the good beer in Kansas City? And so there was like a Twitter follower, the Twitter follower named Kansas City Beer Scouts. I was like, "You are who I need," <laughs> and Perfect. asked him where the best beer is, and and quoted him, and 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 um, and had him listed as a as a uh, as a contributor, and just basically just tried to you know put a guide together for. And I've I've updated this now. Um, there's a, a similar thing up at the Athletic. Um, where it's just the best beers around the stadium so that you can and in the stadium. So, you know, you could do something where you plan a trip to Seattle and you go to Georgetown Brewing um, and you take the Uber from there to the to the park um, and you get great beers at the, at the park there. So that was the idea was like, what if I had a day in Seattle? What if I had a day in uh you know kansas city where would where, where would i go how would i plant it and it would always it always ends up at a brewery my wife is uh big into plants so like she's always like can we stop by the nursery and I was like as long as we can stop by the brewery
0: <laughs> yeah I mean technically plants are a part of beer when it gets to the That's ingredients right. so <laughs> there, there's right. a way to bring it all full circle. <laughs> yeah and I, I love that resource because I've thought you know just if you go to ballparks enough I'm close to Dodger Stadium so I know um, you know, right above the field level sections, down the left field line, there's one good craft beer spot. Otherwise, it's that's all a, um, a lot of Golden Road and other stuff that's totally fine to drink. Like, it's probably better than a lot of other ballpark beers. But if you're really looking for craft, sometimes you have to know which spot to look for. In Seattle, it's actually the sweet seats right behind on plate, behind those sections. Um, there's a good spot that's usually got, I think, six or so taps. And it's not even Maybe just local beer. Plate,
1: yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: And, and San Diego is just swimming in amazing craft <laughs> beer. Really. Yeah. So yeah. um, So it's an awesome resource to know, okay, if, if you go enough, you'll figure this out. But if you've got a day and you want to make the most of it, it's so nice to be able to look to an expert and somebody who's really put in the time. So I love you're that actually you make that
1: actually read 2.0 for that one.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such a rapidly changing landscape. So if you're at a 2.0, then, then sign me up. I'll make sure to, uh, get it and LA just read it on my phone as I'm, yeah, <laughs> as I'm hopping around. Yeah. If you need anybody in LA, I've got some, some good experience over these past few years. So we can, we can definitely keep that in mind, but I also know that in addition to looking for beer expertise in different markets, a lot of people look to you for fantasy baseball expertise. And mm-hmm. we can, we can touch on some of that as the fantasy baseball draft season is ramping up and hitting a fever pitch pretty soon. But Um, Yeah, for background, you're the co-host of the Rates and Barrels podcast. And actually, before we get into the game itself, I know that recently Rates and Barrels was the co-champion of a 2021 fantasy baseball podcast bracketology. First off, congrats on that win, but I know there was also a pretty interesting ending. Could you uh, share a little bit of context as to how the co-championship came about?
1: I mean, there was like an hour left and I'm making dinner and we're winning like uh, 57 to 43 or something like we were and we and there were like 2500 votes already in so i was like it looks pretty good i'm gonna make some dinner you know uh not bother people on twitter for the votes anymore and uh 20 minutes later i logged back on and check it out and uh we're losing 60 of 40 and there's like 2600 votes so basically like 500 (laughs) votes came in in the other direction like immediately and it's funny because I'm, I was cynical about it. I was like, oh, man, they held the, the late hammer. You know, like they, they held some votes back to make me think that I was winning. And then they dropped the hammer on me. Uh, but uh, Nick Pollock and Alex Fast, who, who run the pitcher list, are um, not at all like that. And instead, uh, they saw it and immediately knew that someone had botted us and there had been some sort of bot attack. Uh, And they reached out to us and said, this doesn't seem right. You know, we don't, we don't think it was natural. Uh, We think there was a a bot that, that, that sabotaged this. And so we got on the horn with the person who put the thing together and we all just decided, um, I said, you know, if if you want to crown their champions, that's fine. They won the year before. It's not like uh, they're not a good podcast. They're a great podcast, you know? So it's like, it's okay, you know? Um, But they thought it wasn't right. And so uh we uh we we did a co-champion thing and we did a podcast together the super pod so uh that's on there if you want to check out Rates and Barrels it's it's everywhere on um, uh, you know on Apple or YouTube we're doing YouTube now and uh uh so check us out and we did the super pod on uh Monday so if you want to see two pods get together and battle it out over pitching
0: Yeah, that was a cool episode. I liked the camaraderie where it was a weird dynamic how that voting all went down, but at the end, it brought everybody together, and and maybe there wouldn't have been the Superpod without it, so that can go to all the listeners' benefit. My only complaint with that contest, beyond the questionable finish, let's say, would be there were four regions in it, kind of mirroring the March Madness bracket, and they were named for four players. All worthy guys, Ronald Acuna, Mookie Betts, Fernando Tatis Jr., and Juan Soto. But while I don't have any beef with those guys, no Mike Trout. That seemed like a pretty <laughs> glaring omission. So that would have been my one note on an otherwise really cool contest.
1: Trout always gets short shrift, man. He's like he's. I probably. I mean, he's not far from the best player of all time, and he's in the conversation right now for top five players of all time. And here we are. He's still playing, and we have a a podcast battle, and he's he's not in it. Nowhere
0: nowhere to be mentioned. A part of it might be the team he's on. I know. I mean they've had a historically great player for pretty much a decade at this point and zero playoff wins to show for it. I know his personality type. It's not as flashy and you know, that's what I find endearing in some ways. I understand where other people could find it pretty boring, but if his biggest interest outside of baseball is following the weather or going fishing or hunting, then at least he's the guy you don't have to worry about in any, in any sense of negative news.
1: Yeah, it's true. Uh, it's probably why he hasn't been marketed hard, but, uh, uh, you know, one thing that's that's great to me about Mike Trout, and it's something that I, um, it's hard to look for, and it's hard to see in players, and it's hard to scout, and I think it's really meaningful. And so, uh, it's something that I've, I'm not equipped often to to be able to scout for, but, and all of us, it's a hard, makeup. And, and the way that I see it with Mike Trout is, he's had a couple of uh, flaws. Like, he, when he first came in the league, you could attack him up in the zone. And he just went to town on that. Like, he was like, oh, you think you can pitch me up in the zone? And he, he figured out a mechanical response to that. And still, today, like, it's still one of the better places to pitch him because he's a great low ball hitter, but he kind of, you know, quelled that. It's like, It reminds me of Marcus Simeon out here in Oakland, you know, wasn't the greatest defender, worked every day to be the greatest defender he could be and became a, a league average shortstop, which no one ever said he could be defensively. Um, and it's a it's a it's a tough thing to see, uh, but um, I see it a little bit in a guy named Mitch Haniger, uh, who this year um, is coming back from some pretty massive injuries and is not on anybody's radar really, um, and is really cheap in fantasy drafts. Uh, I just keep finding myself getting shares of Mitch Haniger, and I think he's going to have a good year.
0: Yeah, well, that's one thing I wanted to touch on. Um, I know you you're really an expert when it comes to evaluating pitching, but with hitters, what does your evaluation process look like?
1: You know, there's uh, projections are better with hitters than pitchers. So, worst case scenario, you can go to fan graphs, load up the projections. My favorite are the Bad X projections from Derek Cardy, and um, and and just use those projections, and and you'll you'll be pretty good. Uh, but there are, you know, there I think there's a place for uh, for trying to figure out divine makeup. I don't know how to, how to really do it as a fan. Um, other than like, I think you can read pieces and see it. Like there were all these pieces about, uh, Marcus Simeon working with Ron Washington and on being the best he could be, you know, um, and a lot of that happened before he had that awesome, uh, near MVP season in, in 2018, uh, or 2019. So, um, I, I think that if, like working hard is a, is a meaningful thing. Um, and then another thing that I would just look at that are uh, really interesting in small samples are things like maximum exit velocity, uh, something on the on the Statcast site where if you're looking at a young player that's come up, Gavin Lux has not really done that yet, uh, has not really showed that upside yet. So maybe he's more of a 15 homer hitter because he hasn't really showed the the maximum exit velocity of a of a guy who's going to hit for a lot of power. Uh, but uh, if you look over in Arizona. Ketel Marte had a, a bad season last year, uh, but he still had the same maximum exit velocity that he did in the year that he hit 32 homers. So that to me says he still has that power upside. And so I'll, I'll buy Ketel Marte for the projections, which say he's going to hit 290 and hit 20 homers and 10 stolen bases. And that means I can get him in the sixth or seventh round uh, of most drafts. However, he still has the upside to hit 30 homers because he's still, and he's, he has four batted balls over 110 miles an hour this spring, so I think he can still hit the ball really hard. Uh, and the other one that's, that's just a, uh, another bas- baseball savant stat is, is barrels, and uh, barrels just uh, sort of combine, you know, angle how how well you hit the ball in the air and if you hit the ball hard in the air. And uh, it, and apparently barrels are super sticky year to year. They 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 are they project power well. Uh, they're useful in small samples. So. Uh, you got to go to baseballsavant.mob.com uh, to, to, to see the leaderboards on those. But uh, anybody who's good at barreling the ball, uh, any young player that has a good maximum against velocity, like Rowdy Telez last year had a good maximum exit velocity and had a great year. So uh, those are two things that I look for. Yeah,
0: and I like the approach of trying to filter out the signal from the noise and knowing, okay, there's a lot of stats out there, but here are a couple that matter. Or even when it comes to makeup, I – it can be just bombarding every year saying, okay, how many players are really in the best shape of their lives when they're port to spring training or yeah, how many guys have good chemistry with their, you know, their new battery mate, if they're switching teams or, or stuff like that. It, that's
1: why it's so tough. That's why it's so tough. You're right. It's really tough to, to figure that one out. Um, yeah. But there's something about like multiple pieces. Sometimes when like, if like Ken Rosenthal writes like a spotlight piece about you, it's a little different than if the local beat writer you know, quotes you from a Zoom saying, like, you feel real good. You know what I mean? So there's a little bit of something trying to figure that one out. And But I just – I don't want to – I used to come into this and be like, it's a numbers, it's numbers, it's only about numbers. And the more that I'm in the clubhouse, the more I see there are soft things at play here. There People are humans. These people are humans. And um, there is something – like, I have two sons, and one is more of a high-motor guy, and one is more of a – uh, kind of read a book and hang out, kind of guy. And I know which one of them I think would be more likely to be an athlete. <laughs> so there is something to kind of you know um, having that aggressive, high motor. I'm going to do every single thing I can do to compete. Uh, that that is successful.
0: Yeah, for sure. And there's some of this stuff that isn't is easily measurable. To your point, and what I think is important to take away is um, even with you having access to clubhouses under more normal circumstances, so to speak, or for the casual fan, not even having that access, it can seem like, how do we figure this out? Oftentimes the people closest to these players might not even know, but the objective doesn't have to be to figure out exactly what might be going on and quantify exactly how much it matters. When we're talking fantasy, it's just, can you identify a signal better than 10, 11 of your league mates? Or if you're betting, on a team to win a game or, you know, uh, to, you know, and place a futures ticket. Can you just be better than the market? You don't have to get it 100% right. You just have to have a little edge on everybody else. And being able to find that signal can go a
1: long way. And I think I would start with the projections. The projections always give you a good sense of like, what's most likely to happen. And so I'm not saying that like, um, some, you know, borderline guy who hasn't made it um, yet and hasn't done anything. I'm not going to say that he's going to hit 35 homers just because uh, I like something about his makeup, but I do think that it has a lot to do if you, if you play in keeper leagues and you can watch prospects. Um, I think it's the hardest thing for scouts to get right. And I think it's the most important thing that we don't measure. So um, it's one of those things where I would like use it as a tiebreaker Uh, I would think about it more with young players and with prospects. And um, I'm just not as like, I used to be kind of like, it's the numbers, it's the numbers, it's only the numbers. (laughs) And I'm not quite sure that's true.
0: Yeah, and, and the same could apply. I know we've been talking a lot with hitters, but when it comes to pitching, I know your Twitter profile banner image is a pitch grip with the Major League Baseball. So how would you describe your evaluation process when it comes to pitchers specifically?
1: Yeah, well, here's here's where things change a little bit because pitchers are projections are not as good on pitchers. Uh, projections miss on pitchers more often, and when we're doing prospect stuff, um, prospect like pros pitcher prospects bust more often. Um, and so, like I I think that there's a little bit more of a divination process when it comes to pitching, and that's why it's always been fascinating to me. It's like why why are we so bad at projecting them? Why? Why are there so many uh, prospects, pitcher prospects, that bust? What? Why can't we figure out what's what's right with the pitcher? And so recently, with the advent of Pitch FX, which tracks the movement, um, the velocity, and all the sort of aspects, the spin rate of all the pitches, um, you know, now it's Hawkeye. But uh, with that new technology, we have done a lot of research on what makes a pitch good, absent of all the other factors. Can we strip out? batted ball noise. Can we strip out how bad the fielders are? How bad the umpire is? Can we trip, strip out how bad the catcher is? Can we strip out all that and just say what types of movements uh, lead to good outcomes? And um, we've done, they've done some good research on that. And I, I would label that sort of stuff. Um, but I also found that like, I would bet on guys. There was this guy, Josh James uh, for the Astros last year. And I was like, Josh James has amazing stuff. It's like ninety nine, and it goes like this, and then he's got a, a hammer, and he's got a crazy changeup, and there's no way he's gonna, he's he's not gonna be any good. Like he's he's gonna be an ace. Uh, Josh James has really bad command, and command is really been uh, tough to nail down because command is how well you do uh, what you want to with the pitch. Sometimes that is throw a ball, you know. Sometimes. Uh, That is throw a pitch in the dirt. And so uh, I've worked with Stats Perform to to have a a command number now. And then the last piece, which is really, really hard that I've tried to add this year, is injury projection. And I don't think that any team has a real sense of that. And um, it's the last biggest piece of chaos in baseball. Uh, But you can kind of still say Carlos Carrasco, Denilson Lamette, Steven Strasburg, these guys are a higher injury risk than other guys. They've been on the DL. They've had arm injuries, you know. And so I tried to create a third number that was sort of injury list percentile. Um, and that's why I haven't – I don't have any shares of Steven Strasburg. I don't have any shares of Carlos Carrasco. I don't have any shares of Denilson Um, And they've all been struggling with the injury issues this spring. So I do kind of a red, red, green, yellow flag when it comes to command stuff and injury. And I'll look at the projections and I'll look at what people are doing in drafts, but that's basically my process.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think there's a lot of good insight here on some specific hitters and pitchers you've mentioned, how to evaluate them a little bit differently, perhaps. When it comes to simply approaching fantasy baseball at a high level, how would you describe the way that you view the game? And what are maybe some simple things that most fantasy baseball players? could do that could help them win more?
1: Uh, Like I used to uh, wait a really long time just to take starting pitching just because they get injured more often and they stay injured longer. Uh, But the problem is the market has kept pushing pitching up and up and up and up. And if you really don't take pitching early at all, um, then you get in trouble because uh, then you, then you're picking your first pitcher from a really low batch and it's no good. So I would say, uh, Get an ace. Uh, I, I like it in the second round. If you do first round, that's okay. You know, Degrom, Bieber, and Cole deserve to be first rounders. That's fine. Uh, but I prefer kind of second round guys like Bueller. Um, I'm a big fan of Woodruff, uh, Nola. Those guys in the second round give you an ace. Um, and then I would say uh, get a bunch of hitters uh, because I prefer to get an ace and then uh, stack pitchers in the middle uh because a lot of people will take three four pitchers in the first six seven rounds and there's a lot of really great hitters there that steal bases um and the, and stolen bases are just going the way of the dodo and uh there's like maybe 18 to 20 guys that are going to give us all the stolen bases that we really want this year and uh if you're all picking from those 18 to 20 guys it's very slim pickings so basically i would say is have your ace strategy and have your stolen base strategy. Uh, identify the the players that are going to give you stolen bases uh, and identify your ace and uh, you'll be better off for your draft. Sounds good. Well, I know that betting is part of the
0: game with fantasy in a lot of leagues. There's usually some sort of buy-in, but a big pillar of this podcast will be betting in the sense that people would expect maybe walking into a sports book, those kind of numbers you can bet. And with your knowledge of the game and access to a lot of teams and players i was wondering if there was anything that you liked when it came to a team to maybe win the world series or a team to win its division regular season win totals are a little different this year because they're doing win percentages due to the possibility of some game cancellations oh but basically are there any teams that you feel like you might be higher on or lower on than the rest of the market as far as you're gauging
1: Well, one thing I looked at was uh, projections, uh, sort of consensus projections, where I looked at um, uh, what do the projections say versus uh, what does Vegas say? And the Mets came up uh, in projections four wins north of where Vegas had them. And so the Mets are are consistently a 93-94 win team, and Vegas has them 89-90. I think that makes them whether you want to do the, the win line, um, the win over under, or, or if you want to do, um, if you want to bet on them to win the World Series, it, that makes them intriguing because um, I think that the road in the National League goes through the Dodgers. They're going to be chalk, But if you can get to the Dodgers and then you know they, they do have some uh, older players on that team get a little lucky with some of those guys being hurt at the right time. Kershaw's back, uh, Justin Turner's body <laughs> at this point, he, he's always losing time somewhere. Um, you know, there's different guys that could be out and uh, the Mets could make it all the way. Uh, it, it requires uh, some health on their own. Noah Syndergaard has to come back and be healthy. Um, they, I don't really love their, their pitching depth uh, in the starting rotation. So, Mainly, mainly Degrom has to stay healthy. But if they get to the postseason with Degrom and Thor healthy, um, they're young guys uh, in the in the in the lineup uh, bopping, and that bullpen actually has a chance to be a top three bullpen in this league uh, with the with the guys they put together. So, I think the Mets are a, a good bet uh, for a lot a host of different reasons.
0: Yeah, and I'm looking at their odds right now. One of the sharper offshore sports books, they're lined at a winning percentage over 56 at minus 130. Basically, did some quick math. That implies they're right about a 91 win team based on these numbers. Still a good bet. are 93. To, yeah, closer to what you're saying you saw in Vegas versus the projection. So there's a little bit of wiggle room there. And if we look at World Series odds, obviously the Dodgers are the most likely pick. But for the Mets, we've got, yeah, plus 965. So a touch shy of 10 to 1 is the possible payout there. So,
1: I mean, I don't think you really want to do the chalk guys because they, they, you don't get as much return. And, uh, and there's always something that can go wrong. Uh, but I, I prefer, uh, the win lines more than, um, more than winning the World Series just because I've studied the postseason. And there's a, there's a couple things that matter in the postseason. Strikeout rate by batters matters a little bit more than usual, um, and uh, defense actually becomes a little bit more valuable in the postseason, which doesn't speak that well to the Mets. Um, but mostly, the postseason is chaos. So I'd rather say I think this team can win more than ninety games than I can. That, that I'd rather not say I think this team can win the World Series. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I love like that.
0: crazy it, thing. I love that angle because so much of betting, especially if you have an edge or you you're pretty confident you have a good edge would be trying to reduce the variance that could undermine your advantage. And 162 games, obviously much bigger sample size than a possible yeah. three to five game series. Best, once we get to the postseason,
1: The and best bet I, I ever love- made though. The best bet I ever made was the Red Sox to win the world series. The first time they ever won the world series. I put like 20 bucks down and made 300 or something. Oh man, that can be,
0: that can be such a thrill. It can also be dangerous if you're new to betting and you're just like, oh, it's not easy. All right, cool.
1: Yeah. Well, I I do like your point. I think I actually traded my, my, my family, my dad has bet on baseball for a long time and that's part of why I'm into it. Um, But uh, you know, we've had some troubles in the family with betting. And so, uh, you know, my dad bets, had bet less than his grandpa and I had bet less than my dad. And uh, so I basically, for like maybe like sort of seven to 10 years, traded off of that money I made off that one bet.
0: <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's just yeah, kept that's in the bank it.
1: account. And was like, I'll just keep doing futures every year. And then finally, it got down to the point, I think that I have like 10 bucks left at that 300.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's a nice cushion to last quite a bit of time. And I, I also would be remiss not to point out your angle on looking at regular season wins versus the futures for the World Series. Just from a mathematical standpoint, the books bake in a lot more of a house take on futures like to win the World Series yeah. than a yes, no, like binary outcome bet such as over, under a win percentage. So win and doubt, I, I would definitely agree. Just from a pure number standpoint, that's the way to go.
1: In One addition to I'd, some of the posts. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. One thing I'd also point out is that... Um, at the very top and the very bottom, um, it'll always look good. If you use projections, it'll always look good to, like, fade the Dodgers uh, because nobody wins 105 or whatever, or, or bet on the Orioles because projections say they'll win 62 and, and, and Vegas has them at 58 or whatever, right? Uh, the problem is that better teams tend to get better during the season around the trade deadline, and worse teams tend to get worse and the whole idea of projections is to kind of push everybody to the mean. And if you push everybody to the mean, you would never really project anybody to win 110 games, and you never really project anybody to lose to lose 110 or 120 games. You gotta just push everybody to the mean. Problem is people win 110 all the time, and people lose 110 all the time. And it's because the Orioles this year, if they are winning, they'll say, ah, Trey Mancini, it was a really great story. <laughs> we love you so much, uh, but we got a good offer from the team. <laughs> you know? uh, and uh, the Pirates uh, look like a, a good bet on the over, uh, but the Pirates will trade anybody that they don't have nailed down. So uh, the only exception I have to that rule is that the Rangers uh, are projected to win more games than Vegas has them, and the Rangers are in a new stadium Uh, With full capacity on day one and uh, a GM who has gone through a rebuild and has gotten nothing for it uh, in John Daniels. There may be more pressure on them to not sell uh, and to pretend like everything's building towards something uh, than uh, someone like the Pirates who have a new GM uh, who will gladly sell anything that he can.
0: Yeah, I love that point. It's so important to keep in mind the arc of a season and a team's motivation. Sometimes yeah. we'll see moves made not generally in the best interest of a team in the long term, but because there's a GM who's looking to save his job. Or I think of the Oakland A's, yeah. uh, like Billy Bean around the Moneyball era came out, okay, it's like April and May, see what you've got, June and July, go get what you need, August and September, play with your A team. So, and it's, they often beat their
1: projections because they acquire, they acquire talent most years. Exactly.
0: So it's, it's not necessarily what we see the first even couple months of the season. It might feel like, okay, we've seen this team play 60 games. It's established who they are. You know, on one hand, there's the adage, it's never early in June. Like at a certain point, we, we do get that sense. But the way the deadline works, understanding a team's motivation can really inform that what we see in April and May, not necessarily what we're going to see come August and September. That's a good point. So I also wanted to touch on the betting angles when it comes to some individual awards, knowing that with your fantasy expertise, there might be something you like when it comes to home run leaders, MVP, Cy Young. Are there any players that you've had a chance to look at the odds for there? And if not just anybody who just directionally, you feel like you're much higher on than the consensus would be at this point.
1: Um, Well, one of, the, one of my favorite, like I said, one of my favorite projection systems is the Bad X on Fangraphs. And uh, Eugenio Suarez is projected to have the second most home runs in baseball this year, uh, next mm. to Mike Trout. If you can get odds on Eugenio Suarez leading the league in home runs, I'm sure they will be less than the ones for Alonzo or Harper or Trout or Acuna or whatever, or Soto. Mm. So uh, I'm all over that one. Um, Another name that comes to mind, uh, Steamer is a pretty good projection system too. Uh, They have Yonder, uh, I mean, sorry, Jordan Alvarez uh, hitting 37 with Mike Trout in the lead at 41. Jordan Alvarez is healthy now. He's a big bopper uh, and uh, he's in a pretty good stadium for power. Uh, you'd be betting on the knees to be healthy, but, uh, he says he's healthier than you think he is. That's like literally what he said the other day. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, uh, and, and what, for what it's worth, Suarez, uh, shows up well in steamer too. So both those guys are within four or five homers of the league lead. Um, Suarez has a really nice home park for, for, for things. One thing that, um, makes things a little bit harder this year is that the ball has changed and we're all trying to figure out uh, what the ball will play like. Um, but the bad X, I know, um, factored in the uh, the stuff that we reported about the change in balls. Um, and so I believe they're smaller home run totals for a lot of players, and that's why I think Suarez at 39 behind Mike Trout at 42, especially if you can get uh, Suarez leading the NL in homers uh, when he's not the – if he's not chalk. Uh, then I'm all over that. Got it. Yeah, right now I'm looking at, these
0: are major league leaders, so not isolating the NL, although some books will offer that. So as always, shop around if you're looking for a specific number. But looking at the majors as a whole, Mike Trout, the odds-on favorite at plus 850. Pete Alonso right behind him at plus 900. Suarez, you can get north of 23 to 1. Woo, and Alvarez is just a touch north of 18 to 1. So... Something to keep an eye on for sure.
1: And you, you also the the normal characters are Gallo and Alonzo and stuff. If you want to talk, uh, 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 if you want to talk about MVP, um, you know, I, I I vote some years. um, And what we're seeing as a trend there is that Hughes closer to wins above replacement um, over over time. And so by projected wins above replacement now using steamer the leaders are are trout bellinger um and acuna oh i think i have that wrong sorry i was still sorted by home runs uh trout Betts, tatis Bregman, soto bellinger acuna's in the top 10 it's really all the same names um so here i think uh the nl is more interesting because um in the AL, the drop between Trout at 7.1 and Bregman at 5.8 just means to me Trout is a strong chalk, you know. Um, he's like a perennial MVP candidate. And if the Angels start winning games because the team is better around them, then it, it, the, the narrative will will go with war and he'll win another one. But the NL is super interesting. And I almost call it a pick So if you want to take a guy that has good odds, uh, Bets and Tatis are tied at projected WAR, but Soto is .1 back. Bellinger is .1 back. So really, uh, take your pick, man. And and Seager, uh, the batted ball stats say Corey Seager could be could be the guy this year. So uh, and he's only uh, projected sort of .5 back. So uh, that's that's the grouping. If you want to go by your gut there a little bit, I think it's fine. Um, is Tatis going to be healthy all year and put together that, that season and be an MVP in his third season, totally possible, totally plausible. Soto, I think perennial MVP on the on the Trout level. But Corey Seager, a lot of signs point to, to yes on him.
0: Yeah, and I'm looking at, again, MVP odds, and it backs up a lot of what you just said. So in the AL, Trout is the only player with a payout of less than 10 to 1, and he's not even returning 2.5 to 1. He's at plus 245 right now. Bregman next it I think,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. Bregman next it, just a little over 10 to one. It's tough because you mentioned voting for the MVP award and this is something I wonder. um, I, I like to think I can be as objective as possible, but I am an angels fan and I remember the MVP race in 2012 when that was also interesting having a triple crown winner that threw a wrench into the whole debate. But when it comes to teams, I remember people were saying, screw the triple crown Cabrera's on the better team. Cause they made the playoffs. I think there was a year that there was a trout Cabrera race where the angels had the better record, but they were also in a better division. So the tigers made the playoffs with fewer wins and everybody says, Oh, Cabrera deserves it. Cause he's on the playoff team. And I'm just wondering Whoa. how much of that. Yeah. How much of that do you sense still goes into the process? It sounds like the way you described it, things have you know, kind of modernized in that sense.
1: We're getting better. Uh, I'm a member of the beat baseball writers association. So I get a vote. I think we're getting better at voting in general. Uh, things other things are getting harder uh, when it comes to Hall of Fame and, and certain awards. It's getting harder to discern how much we should uh, consider off field events. Um, and and the, and the Hall of Fame is not giving us a great guidance on that. But when it comes to like uh, the awards, like, you know, I think there was a big sea change when Felix Hernandez won the Cy Young with uh, something like 11 and 12 record or something. Mm-hmm. We weren't looking at at wins so much. Um, I do think that that Trout uh, Cabrera argument uh, opened a lot of people's eyes uh, to the folly. I think of just saying this guy is on a better team. I mean, there's 25 guys on the team, and even if you're saying, okay, well, you know, spots 20 through 25 don't matter that much. There's nine guys in the lineup. I mean, you could put Mike Trout on uh, the Pirates next year, and they're not going to do anything. Yeah, you know? <laughs> Mike Trout will do some stuff. The, the pirates will still not be any good um so i think that it's uh i think i don't I, li- I don't like to vote like that i it doesn't have to be just war because war has defense in it and our de- defensive statistics are not amazing but i would start with war you know how i was saying earlier like i would start with projections and then allow myself to kind of think beyond that i would start with war if i'm look if i'm gonna vote and i'm looking at potential candidates to vote for, I'll group the top five or 10 by war, maybe top five and say, okay, this is my top five. Now I'm going to put war away. And now I'm going to look at other factors. Now I'm going to think about things. Um, so uh, I, that's how I I, th- I see war and projections as sorting systems. They help us sort and group players. Like if I'm doing a, a draft, a lot of times I'll, I'll use projections to sort who I should be sh- should be picking. But then I'll look at ADP. I'll look at uh, other factors, and I'll say, okay, projections say these guys are within 50 cents of each other. Does that mean anything? Do you think that we're so good at projecting the value of these two players that this player is really 50 cents better than this other player? Like, that doesn't mean anything to me, you know what I mean? So if I just really think that this I want this player and not that player, I'm going to take that player. So I think it's the same way with betting. We can use projections to get the right players in our grouping. So don't don't bet on uh, Jake Cronenworth to win the MVP. That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. I can't put it high <laughs> enough. Yeah, right. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, but once you have, and especially when you look at the National League, right? You're like, oh my God, they have the projections say there's five guys that are basically in the race. Look at the odds. Look at who you like. Don't pick chalk, and be like. You know this guy's three back. He's he's right there in the projections. Corey Seager, all the batted ball stats look amazing for Corey Seager. He's projected to be right there. He gives me the best odds. I'm betting Corey Seager. Yeah, he give you the best at, odds.
0: Does he even have odds? He does. So the odds right now the, of the guys you mentioned: bets seven to one, Ballinger seven and a half to one, Soto eight to one, Tatis eight and a half to one. Then actually, a few guys with better odds than Seager, for him it jumps up to fifteen to one. So that's something to consider too. I think he's there are times to where be in
1: the same group as the other guys.
0: Yeah, and he's he's getting almost twice the payout as he's getting more than twice the payout of guys like Betts and Bellinger. I know they're they're on his team, so that complicates it. But I mean, we saw what Seager did down the stretch in the postseason, and if that carries over in any way, his profile is high right. enough that that could be enough to break through. So, it's I tough. yeah I. I like your point about looking at projections and and having a sense of what numbers matter, but also opening things up to the human element and not having the arrogance to think that you know, you know, down to the decimal point, how much of a difference it is when we're really just splitting hairs and some of it is inherently arbitrary.
1: Yeah, that's what I was talking about the team projections too, man. Uh, It's nice to put the team projections next to the Vegas lines, but the error bands on team projections are such that um you, you know like a normal curve means that like uh, standard deviation how would i put this okay if you project a team to win 81 games and they win 90 that doesn't break your projection system that's within the realm of the uh, the error in projection systems <laughs> so that you wouldn't mm-hmm. say oh my projection system was totally wrong you'd say okay that's about a, a standard deviation and a half from normal <laughs> that's not even that wouldn't be that weird so uh, the, it's false precision to say, oh, the Mets are projected for 93 and a half wins and they have them been 90 over and under. <laughs> I am trying to say that generally projected system will like it better. And then when I look at the team, I say, oh, the Mets have spent a lot more time thinking about depth this year than they normally have. They have they have a, a lot more players on the bench that are good players. They have, they, they, they got a lot more relievers in camp. They, they bought like a sixth and seventh a starter that actually could pitch in the major leagues. So there's different things that you have to think about. Yeah. But yeah, it's false precision to think that projections are telling us exactly how it's going to happen. That's when people say like, Oh, we shouldn't even play. I'm like, no, it's fascinating. <laughs> we ha- It's fascinating to, to actually play the games and see how different it is from, from the projections
0: <laughs> yeah and when it comes to the projections and considering betting on this stuff obviously there's so much variance in randomness and it's important to accept that up front and not extend your bankroll beyond your means but also when you talk about a team like the Mets versus the Orioles you know if if they are both like somewhere in the playoff picture as we approach the trade deadline for Baltimore that would be a surprise but I guess it's possible we still know which of those two teams is more likely to buy the pieces to put it over the top and which of them is going to sell. So there's some variance in there and, and circling back to that earlier point of understanding where the team is in the broader context of things that can also be informative. And one last point to circle back on when you're mentioning, um, you know, like the different standard deviations or if a team's projected at 93.5 and It comes in at 90. That doesn't mean your system is broken. It reminds me of looking at Super Bowl props this past year. This was when I first thought of it this way. I know sharper people than myself have had this figured out for a while. But Tyreek Hill receiving yards under was one of my favorite prop bets because shortly before kickoff, that line went into the triple digits. And, of course, he had torched Tampa Bay for well north of 200 yards in the regular season game and just he makes big plays all the time. And I had to think, okay, if you if they play this game a hundred times, the mean receiving yards for Tyreek Hill will probably be in the triple digits. But if you look at the median, there will be some games, 200 plus yards, and there will be the, you know, the 25 yard 20 and yeah, yeah. And when you're betting this stuff, often the median supersedes the mean when you're trying to find betting value. So that not trying to get too far in the weeds, but just to frame that approach, I think there's a lot of Parallel to that, Tyreek Hill Super Bowl prop bet, as well as when we're looking at regular season win totals, or what we could expect from certain players in the MVP, home run,
1: Cy Young markets. Yeah, 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 yeah. Start with the projections, and then and put a little thinking on top of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I I want to be respectful of your time. I, I know that. um, there's so much more that I could get to. I will throw in one more question before bring it back to beer. One more baseball question, looking at a macro level storyline for the 2021 season as a whole. You mentioned earlier the deadened ball. I love the quote that uh, you told Rob Manfred, his answer lacked believability when he was giving short shrift to the ball changes a few years ago when you and others were onto it. And Ben Lindbergh has since loved the charge, I think in doing some really good work. I was at spring training in Tempe a week ago today. I saw Griffin Canning have a start where his command just disappeared in the second inning. And it could just be paid spring training. He's ramping up. It happens. But he said after the game that he was pretty sure he had the different ball. He said he noticed a difference from what he's become used to. So I know the league isn't being really transparent with, hey, this is the game. We're going with the dead ball and tomorrow we'll go with the live ball. But I mean, Canning and other pitchers have said they feel like they notice the difference. Do you think that's going to have much of an impact this season when it comes to the play we see on the field and those implications for fantasy betting and watching as a fan?
1: Yeah, it's it's a really tough thing that baseball, uh, the baseball keeps changing. It's a it's a fundamental part of the game. And. In the past, what we've seen is that the drag has changed. So there's been small changes in how the ball is wound, um, and uh, that has led to changes in how the ball flies. Um, So this year, uh, based on my reporting with Ken Rosenthal, they've changed the bounciness of the ball. The problem is they didn't test the drag at all. So we don't know how the ball will perform on the way to the plate in terms of ball movement, and we don't know how the ball will fly through the air. We just know that it'll bounce differently. They did some tests. They say that you know one or two feet are going to be gone off of a three hundred seventy to 375 foot, 375-foot fly ball. That seems like it's not a big deal. It is kind of because that reduces home runs across the board by 5%. But it also doesn't reduce home runs for Aaron Judge 5%. It reduces home runs for uh, Ahmed Rosario 20%. And for Aaron Judge, 0%, because when Aaron Judge hits a home run, it goes way far. And when Emma, Ahmed Rosario go, hits a home run, one foot of difference, two feet of difference can make a big difference. So uh, that's something we're watching. The other thing that uh, – and, and and also, it's not clear when the balls are going to be used. Normally, uh, you take a, a ball – uh, you take last year's balls and you use them in spring training, whatever's left over, because they make a lot for spring. They make a lot for the playoffs. They make uh, they make a bunch of balls for teams that don't make the playoffs. Right. Because in case they make the playoffs, they have to have balls. And then those teams don't make the playoffs and they use them in the spring. And the memo that we saw that said there's a new ball this year said that was approved for the championship season, which is the regular season. So I think what's pro- the problem is and we've seen Blake Snell talk about the laces being different we're seeing great Griffin canning I hadn't seen that it's a great pull um, and so what we're seeing from them is that they're like this is this ball's changing and maybe it's changing from inning to inning and that would actually make some sense because they're using some the 2019 balls and some new 2020 balls and they're all just sort of in there together um so yes that's something to watch the other thing to watch is we had no minor leagues last year. Uh, and so, you know, we're watching guys like Bobby Witt Jr. with the Kansas City Royals um, and uh, C.J. Abrams with the Padres. C.J. Abrams is probably not going to matter to the Padres this, that much this year because uh, he's 20 years old and the Padres are amazing. But the Royals, they could move Modesty to second. They have a virtual hole at second base and Bobby Witt Jr. could play shortstop for the Royals this year. Um, and he would not have played anywhere except for A-ball because he just lost last year. But if he had last year, Bobby Witt might have made double-A last year. And so then we would say, oh, well, this guy made double-A last year. He can make the jump to the majors. So we're all sort of flying blind, and we have no data uh, from last year. I don't think that it was great uh, for them as players to only play their own pitchers, you know? Uh, they only face their own pitchers if they face the alternate site. Um, they, they they took large months off. So if there's a young pitcher, I think, like, how many innings can he pitch? And what sort of competition has he faced? So I think there's just a lot of questions about young players. And this comes at the same time that we're going to have more pitching injuries. We had three times the pitching injuries of a normal season last year. And I think that's going to come That's going to because of the stop and start with COVID and everything. I think there's going to be hangover effect from that, so we're going to have a lot of pitching injuries this year, and we're going to want to pull guys up for the minor leagues, and we're going to have no idea how good they'll be, and we'll have no idea what they've done for the last year, and then we're going to bring some hitters in, and we're going to say, "Hey, I, I think you're ready." <laughs> so, uh, young players and how the ball, uh, how the ball works next year. That's that's what I'm watching. Yeah, well, I think
0: you broke down a lot of the variants really well, whether we're getting ready for a fantasy draft or if we've already drafted, but thinking about how to manage the season or if you don't play fantasy, but you're betting on things. A lot of big factors to keep in mind. And again, it it can seem daunting to know exactly how much the ball might matter or what injuries might come up and what those will mean. But we don't have to get that all right. We just have to be a little bit better than most of the competition. And that's going to go a long way. So. Really appreciate your insight there. I'd love to circle back to the beer side of things for a rapid fire round to wrap things uh-huh. up as we as we polish up our East Coast beers from out here in the West Coast. Yeah. Uh, first up, what would you say if you had to make a Mount Rushmore
1: of beer styles? Which four styles are going up there? Um, I mean, I'm going to put a West Coast IPA on there. I'm going to put a hazy IPA on there. Uh, I'm going to put, uh, I'm going to put, this might be where I'm a little different than some, I'm going to put a pale ale on there. And that's sort of like a crusher. Like sometimes they called session, but like, I want like Firestone Walker, easy Jack, or even these 5% seller maker hazies that they make, you know, like I, I like 5% you know, 5% needs to be in my lifestyle because I have kids and I have Saturday days. and like, I can't be drinking eight to 10% alcohol beers at like 1 PM. You know, daddy will be asleep on the couch again. You know what <laughs> what I mean? So, so I'm going to put pale ale on there, American pale ale on there as a separate entity. And you can throw some sessions in there, whatever you want. That's sort of a 5% pale ale, uh, and then I'm gonna put saison uh, on there uh, myself, and uh, I'm gonna put sours separately because there are, uh, you know, uh, beers like Consecration from Russian River, mm-hmm. Rare Barrel makes some great sours. Um, I don't love, like I said, I don't love the fruited or or kettle or or lactose sours, but there are a lot of sours in between uh, that that uh, take up that space. And uh, so that's my that's my uh, my five styles. I know what's missing is, uh, you know, an imperial stout or a stout or And I like those beers, but uh, I really wish they came in like six ounce cans. <laughs> I really wish that you could have just like a little, a little stubby can. Maybe this is because I don't have anybody uh, in the house really to share those beers with. But I will find myself taking like a pint sized can of some amazing imperial stout and by the end being like whoa i'm ready to go to bed yeah i think that's such a good point even with the
0: hoppier styles i I feel like i I might need to change my instagram handle to something like eight ounce pour if that's available because (laughs) even a can of the best hazy double ipa or i'm you know i'm out close to monkish and they make some of the best triple ipas in the game but one can is a commitment so 12,
1: it's 14% on some of those. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and it's it's pretty wild. And with stouts, I I kind of hit the jackpot um to win a membership with Horace Aged Ales based out of my hometown in Oceanside, North San Diego County. He makes some fantastic barrel-aged stouts, but uh I think his sours are the best beers that he makes. Generally also barrel-aged, not overly fruited. The stouts really are his calling card though. And especially this past year i i don't have people over to share it with and so i've just been kind of sitting on some bottles that i know they might be past their peak right now but do i want to open up a bomber to have All right, five right of it? <laughs> yeah so, i've heard about it so yeah, over. <laughs> yeah we, we've got the side yard ready we've got yeah we're we're ready for it we have got cornhole in the front yard the fire pit in the side yard so anytime mm-hmm. you want i've got a nice outside, of we're okay <laughs> yeah um yeah, so ready to get back into some of those stouts, but I love the fact that you did Hazy's, West Coast, and Pale Ale's all separate. Um, you know, the name of the show being Props and Hops, I'm not going to hold a grudge for anybody who puts three hop forward beers <laughs> in the top five styles. So yeah, love that. Um, let's throw just one more your way to wrap things up. Um, there was a great article recently in The Athletic that I know it was written by your colleagues, Brian Bennett and Brian Hamilton, about local beers for every team in the NCAA tournament. And kind of putting a baseball spin on that, I'd say let's cover a little bit of the NL and the AL, a little bit of West Coast and East Coast. If you were to pick a local beer for, let's say, the Padres and the Red Sox, what would you nominate as the local craft beers for those two teams?
1: Yeah, I, I disagreed with that article when it came to San Diego. Uh, uh, I, I like Modern Times, and at one point in my life, I thought Modern Times couldn't miss. Point is not now, man. I'm sorry. I I just got one of their collaborations, and I'm glad I only got it out of the one can aisle, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, And and it's really just fallen off for me recently, and I'm, I'm just hoping that uh, they can get it back on, because I love Modern Times as a company, and I love their spots in San Diego, but that's not the best beer in San Diego. The best beer in San Diego for me is Pure Project, bar none. And they do really good sours, uh, Stouts and hazies. Um, I have some love for North Park. Uh, I'd probably put Excellent. them around second, um, and maybe abnormal is is on there. Uh, there's a there's a couple places that could come in third, but it, there's a very clear first and second for me. It's Pure Project in North Park uh, in San Diego. Boston, man, Boston has a, a little bit of an embarrassment of riches because uh, Trillium is really great. Jack's Abbey makes some really good crushers in that sort of 5% place uh, that I really enjoy. Lamp Lighter makes really good uh, sours, uh, like sort of Saison Sours, like tart Saison Sours. Uh, But I think I'm going with Night Shift. Uh, I think that might've been what I picked for my article. Um, One thing I like about Night Shift is like Whirlpool is maybe a a Mount Rushmore uh, type of uh, IPA. Uh, but they also just make really solid stuff across the board and, uh, and a little bit different than Trillium, where Trillium, I think, if you had a Trillium IPA, um, I don't want this, seems rude. You've had them all? No, you, if you had a Trillium IPA, you recognize Trillium. Like you could, g- if you put a Trillium IPA in my hand and I drank it, I'd be like, well, that's Trillium. <laughs> you would have to tell me. Like I'd be like, oh, that's Trillium. Uh, but uh, Night Shift, I think, has a little bit more variety across its styles. Um has different different stuff going on. I don't think I've had like a a, a Trillium Goza, for example, right? So, uh, but I have had that from Night Shift. So Night Shift, number one, Trillium, number two, and then a, a big old tie for third.
0: Yeah, it's hard to follow any of those. Uh, my initial thoughts would have been breweries that didn't come up, but I'm glad because you've clearly done your homework. Again, if you're into baseball and craft beer and you haven't read it yet, it's not too late to get your hands on A Baseball Lover's Guide to Craft Beer Maybe a 2.0 sometime down the road. If you need an LA correspondent, I'm here for it. But as far <laughs> as something local for the Padres and Red Sox, uh, nothing says San Diego more to me than Swami's IPA by Pizza Port. Uh, that yeah. setting in Solana Beach, if you can get it fresh, it's you You can't beat it. And I think that's probably one you can get fairly easily at the ballpark as the ballpark. well.
1: You can even get bacon and eggs they their porter at the ballpark, which is yeah. rare. You can oh. get porters at ballparks.
0: Yeah, yeah, such a good selection across styles. And then for Boston, I guess this is skirting outside of the Boston limits just a bit, but uh, I'd have to work in Treehouse and Julius, my deserted island uh, beard.
1: I didn't, I didn't oh, I, uh, okay, yeah, of course. <laughs> is, well, that, is, that, is that a drone because
0: I just I'm didn't cheating think that and that going Boston. too wide beyond Boston, yeah, or, or is it because you didn't out. think about it?
1: That's okay. pretty far out. I didn't think of it as Boston. Yes, no, good, okay. good, good, good. No, but I, okay. I, I can uh, break some news here for you, uh, if you like. Um, I'm uh, working on a collaboration, my first, with a brewery. Uh, and so it's a Chicago brewery. Uh, and uh, they make a beer that rhymes with Weezer. And uh, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's coming out a little bit after opening day. Uh, and. Uh, I all sources say it's gonna be a hazy crusher around that mm. 5%, five percent, five to six percent. So uh, pretty excited about that. got to put some got to give some input to uh, the brewing process for the first time and uh, super excited to drink a beer that I that I named and uh, and helped put together. And uh, uh, anybody who's listening in the Chicago area, watch out for that. I think you'll know who I'm talking about already.
0: That's awesome. And is this something that will be local to the Chicago area or will there be any distro out to uh, the rest of the country?
1: I haven't seen their beers uh, locally in California, but uh, the hope is also to uh, get it uh, into some uh, parks in the Chicago area once uh, once that's the sort of thing that happens.
0: I love that note because I know we've talked a lot about some West Coast and East Coast beers, but there's plenty of good beer. I mean, look no further than Side Project, right in the middle of the country. But yeah, Chicago, even Jester King in Texas—it's anywhere in the country these days. Almost that you can a someone really a good great craft beer. Town, beer.
1: I've I've I visited Chicago a lot. Chicago is a really good beer town. Uh, yeah, I, I I'd, I'd put it in the top five. I don't know, you know, San Diego, Seattle. Uh, I know people argue vociferously for Portland. Maybe, uh, I'll get, you know, New York. I think has is, is really come on, uh, and in uh, LA with Monkish, and, and you know the the the, the group picked uh, Highland Park, and I picked mm-hmm. Highland Park over Monkish myself. So um, you know, there's there's room for debate. But I love how uh, Highland Park makes really crisp West Coast IPAs and hazy's at the same time. So that's why I'm a big fan of Highland Park in LA.
0: Yeah. Well, and the one they picked, Hello LA, a classic West Coast so IPA. Good. So yeah, so if you good. want a really good hazy and you can get your hands on Monkish, you're not going to regret it. But if you want something that isn't as hypey, more accessible, a broader range of styles, all executed at an outstanding level, yeah. then Highland Park is more the opportunity to drink the rainbow whereas monkish is just, okay if they've got a barely just style no, going that's there that's a cool place it's not in Hazy's highland park a lot more diversity on the beer board so it's a high level at both spots but i love that hello la selection and i'm excited to see what's in store for your chicago collab so we'll stay tuned for that i think that's a Maybe good I'll time send you to some, do... and oh hell yeah
1: i don't know if it's worth the horse. <laughs>
0: I you know I we'll we'll circle back offline if you want we'll some, some horus or some monkish then then we'll work this out uh, we won't we won't tell the post office what's going it's, to these flat rate boxes but that's we'll, we right. can it's make also something hard
1: work. to trade in California now that you can just ship guys be like oh I'll send you some Sante. and you're like I can order Sante.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah I'll just go to a Fluid State in Ventura and pick up whatever exactly, I want they, yeah. they've got West Ashley on tap they've got Bernice in bottles oh, but my
1: God West you know. Ashley on tap Are you kidding killing me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, well,
1: there's probably still some locals I can figure out or uh I do a lot of trading. So like I said, I'm drinking Bissell today. So maybe I'll I'll retrade you something along with my uh collaboration and get my hands on one of those horses.
0: <laughs> oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, I mean I've got my Alvarado Street t-shirt on today, so I know there's there's a lot of good, good stuff up Hi. in your neck of the woods. Yeah, Celon Maker can do no wrong. You mentioned rare barrel, so uh, yeah, there's there's no shortage of options out that way either. So if people want to see what you're drinking, or I'm sure for more news to come on the collab, I've got a little banner up here. If anybody's watching the video, you can follow Eno at Eno Saris on Twitter. Check out the Rates and Barrels podcast. Subscribe to the Athletic. Read his work. Uh, is there anything I'm missing? Anything you'd like to add for ways that people can get in touch or follow what you're up to?
1: No, I mean I'm I'm at EnoSarris everywhere. I'm trying to do some Instagram stuff, and uh, like I said, we're putting podcasts on YouTube, wherever. Like my kid does, like sees the world through YouTube, which is just bizarre to me. But you know, wherever wherever you're at, uh, just do E N O S A R R I S, and you'll find me. So uh, it was really great to see you again, Matt.
0: Perfect. Yeah. You know, thank you so much for your time. This was such an honor and we will definitely follow up offline about some beer trading that we can, you know, get some horse into your hands, get some of that Chicago collab down here. And yeah, in the meantime, I hope that it's not too terribly long before we can one day meet in person over some good beer and baseball. And until then, I'll look forward to continuing to follow your work from afar. So thanks again. Thanks for having me. Goodbye. Thanks again to Eno for joining the show. You can follow him on Twitter at Eno You can hear him on the Rates and Barrels podcast, and you can read his work on The Athletic. If you found any value in this conversation, please share it with a friend who could benefit as well, and if you want to keep the conversation going, you can follow me on Twitter at MLandis18 and on Instagram at Props and Hops. And for a write-up on the highlights from my conversation with Eno, you can check out dimers.com, where you can also find actionable sports betting information all year long quick programming note, I have another episode coming your way later this week. It'll be with a data scientist and basketball expert. We'll set our sights toward the Sweet 16. I can't wait to have and share that conversation. So make sure to follow or subscribe to Props and Hops if you want that episode to hit your feed as soon as it's live. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again in just a few days. Until then, let's bet well, let's drink well, and let's be well.